0: Hi, everyone. Welcome back to NATO's Road to Madrid, a podcast from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, where we're breaking down the main issues on NATO's agenda ahead of its summit in Madrid next year. I'm your host, Rachel Elihus, Deputy Director of the Europe-Russia and Eurasia Program at CSIS. So far on the podcast, we've primarily talked about the big picture, how NATO's security environment has changed since 2010, and the shifting balance of NATO's three core missions, particularly toward collective deterrence and defense. This week, we're doing our first deep dive into a bit more of a niche area, NATO space policy. To help explain why space matters so much and what is at risk, we're interviewing two brilliant women from two sides of the Atlantic who follow space security issues very closely. Caitlin Johnson, our colleague here at CSIS and Andrea Rotter of the Hans Seidel Foundation in Germany. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Well, Hello everyone and welcome to our fourth episode of our new podcast, NATO's Road to Madrid. Today, I'm just delighted to welcome um, two very clever women on space policy. I'm welcoming Caitlin Johnson, who's the Deputy Director and Fellow with the CSIS Aerospace Security Project, and Andrea Rotter, who's Head of Division of Foreign and Security Policy at the Hans Seidel Foundation. Caitlin, can I start with you? I imagine the topic of of space policy and NATO might be new to some of our listeners. So can you give us a quick overview of the kind of military benefits that are provided by space capabilities?
1: Sure. So I think a lot of people forget how our society is intertwined with space. It's not something that we see in Um, recognize on a day-to-day basis, but you definitely touch it on a day-to-day basis. So a lot of the financial system, the timings for Wall Street, for example, ATMs are underpinned by GPS and precision navigation and timing. It also supports the modern military being able to have precision-guided munitions for soldiers and airmen and and, uh, sailors to talk back to their base or to others in the field using satellite communications. It also provides a lot of data and intelligence gathering services. We have a lot of what we call ISR or intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance satellites that provide a really important national security capability to the United States and and others have these same capabilities as well. And it's really a burgeoning field for both national security policy, but also commercial uh, policy across the world. I think you're right, Caitlin, a lot of people don't think about those applications.
0: They hear the term networked forces, but don't think about what underpins them and that space might have a role there. Andrea, was there something that you wanted to add in terms of of bringing this uh, home to our listeners and how how these space applications affect military benefits or or folks' everyday lives?
2: No, I, I actually have nothing to add. I think Caitlin was quite right in really emphasizing the way everybody's life today is impacted by space-based capabilities, and barely anybody is aware of it. So thank you for talking about this important issue and to help raise awareness.
0: Absolutely. Well, I'll, I'll stick with you then, because NATO has really evolved itself in the way it thinks about space. I mean, it was really only first in 2019 that NATO stepped forward and declared a space one of its new operational domains alongside cyber, air, land, and sea. And this year, it recognized that attacks to, from, or within space could actually lead to invocation of Article 5, so the collective defense clause that says an attack on one ally is an attack on all. So in in your view, Andrea, and and I'll give you a chance as well, Caitlin, what has NATO or or individual allies and members in NATO done to sort of realize this this change of NATO as, as a new operational domain and improve its ability to deter and defend and respond?
2: As you mentioned correctly, I think within the last couple of years, we've seen a fascinating progress within NATO to really grasp the idea of space, not just as a strategic enabler uh, for military operations across all domains, but also for a strategic operational domain in itself. But I think it's also important to note that it's not a new development, so NATO has been a very important space of op- a space actor during the Cold War, although the dynamics certainly are changing. On the international stage, I think you can really witness a, a trend towards centralizing, modernizing and streamlining military, Uh, military capabilities and services all across the globe, especially the United States when it rushed forward, uh, to put it like that, with the establishment of the US Space Force and the um, re-establishment of the US Space Command, but also across Europe, for example, in France or in Great Britain, or as as of July, 2021, also Germany, we've seen the establishments of military space commands and the restructuring of its military forces to better uh, deal with space and the challenges from space.
0: Caitlin, are we seeing anything in terms of more operational planning or exercises or, or working space into NATO's capability targets? Because Andre referred to a lot of efforts that are happening, I think, at the national level, whether it's in the US or in, or in European allied countries. Have you seen any action in, in NATO per se in those areas?
1: Certainly. So I think Andrea just said it so well when she said centralizing, modernizing and streamlining. That is definitely what national capabilities are looking at, but also it has rippled effect into NATO and, and NATO as a multinational organization trying to sort out their own capabilities and capacity for space, but then to start testing and integrating a lot of these national capabilities into the NATO structure. And so you see a couple of um, like centers of excellence for space being stood up and other, you know, NATO specific commands or organizations. We also see many more training exercises starting to get planned or for strategies to start being written. But again, like you said, this was only declared an operational domain um, in 2019. So it is going to take some time to catch up. And, you know,
0: Caitlin, you recently released a chapter in a book, uh, NATO 2030, which is now online, but is going to be coming out in print in January. In that chapter, you note that NATO members decided in the early 2000s that NATO itself should stop independently owning and operating satellites and would instead rely on the national satellites of member states. So NATO owns some of those ground segments that received uh, the communications data from the satellites. But in terms of, of owning those satellites, It really is relying on on national satellites of member states. Can you briefly explain the rationale behind that decision and discuss the benefits and drawbacks of that approach today?
1: Sure. Well, as Andrea said, the space domain really came into its age during the Cold War, along with the nuclear domain. So if you think of it in that context, of course, NATO was actually one of the first actors in space. I think their first satellite was in the 1970s. In that time, you know, space has fully evolved from only supporting nuclear uh command and control or missile warning to having a lot of other capabilities as we've discussed and i think with that and with the end of the cold war countries started to invest in space for different reasons than this like nuclear deterrence and notification and so with that the decision was made that NATO would not procure its own satellites as an organization, but instead rely on members' capacity and capability. And those members have continued to build and operate and um, develop robust space capabilities. The United States, for example, has the best and and most capable uh, space systems, but we see the UK, Germany, France, and Italy also investing heavily in, in, in certain pockets of of uh, space capabilities as well. And so I think with national space strategies, you know, there was the trade-off of, do we want this to be coming from NATO to to fulfill NATO's mission or can we put the burden on the state specifically? And without the context and, and, you know, conflict of the cold war, I think it probably made most sense at the time to rely on nation states. Uh, capabilities than investing in the the NATO architecture.
0: That's an excellent observation, and and I think something that extends beyond space. In fact, in cyber, a lot of the capabilities that. NATO relies on belong to individual member states, and and there is a similar rationale that those capabilities didn't didn't grow out organically because of a desire to to counter that single overarching threat that we saw during the Cold War. They they came out of other purposes and uses, many of them commercial, in fact. So NATO doesn't own and operate a lot, and and this is this is probably um, no exception. But Andrea, something we hear a lot about in NATO circles is this idea of burden sharing, and Caitlin mentioned a few of the nations who actually have space capabilities and you know these are costly high-end capabilities so it's no surprise that it ends up being some of of the bigger members who have them in terms of space is there an over-reliance like we see in other areas on the united states or enabling capabilities in space or is, is space maybe a bit different? Um, and as the EU is starting to ramp up its own capabilities in the security and defense space, is there possibly room for cooperation between NATO and EU with regard to burden sharing in space?
2: That's a very excellent question. And since I come from Germany and I deal with the question of burden sharing within NATO uh, quite a lot, you're absolutely right. Space is another sector where especially European countries are overly reliant on the United States to provide us with the meaningful assets enable to, that enable us to actually conduct our military operations. As Caitlin has pointed out, uh, the United States is still the number one when it comes to critical space infrastructure, but also when it comes to new space industry where most of the technological innovation nowadays takes place. So the United States is really the number one provider and operator of US space systems. So as you mentioned, I think this is also due to the fact that within the airlines, we really have a huge discrepancy between sophisticated capable space actors like the US or like Germany, the France or the United Kingdom, but also a lot of not so sophisticated space actors uh, who really do rely on space capabilities, but cannot provide them on their own. But what we've seen, I think, in the recent years is really across NATO an effort among allies to invest in space capabilities to to a certain degree also lessen our dependence on the United States. And as you mentioned, the European Union. So in general, the European Union space program is civil is civilian in nature. So it rather focuses on the um, space industry. It focuses on the scientific aspect of space research. We've seen quite a significant increase when it comes to investment in these sectors. But on the other side, um, it's also interesting to note that um, there's a growing awareness within the European Union that space is not just a strategic enabler for military operations, but also a very important basis for any kind of notion that you have about strategic autonomy. So especially with France putting forward a very ambitious program for strategic autonomy within Europe, I think uh, there's a growing awareness and also a quite a chance actually to a foster cooperation between NATO and the European Union because the European Union really does have interesting space programs which can also complement NATO's capabilities. Thinking about Galileo, our own navigation system, thinking about Copernicus, our Earth observation systems, um, hopefully soon also Gafsat, our governmental satellite communication system. So I think there's quite a convincing case to be made about closer EU-NATO cooperation, which then should be institutionalized, but which has not happened yet
0: that's fascinating and i want to give the eu credit for having wonderful names for these programs copernicus galileo i mean it really it really sets the level of ambition high and and is really exciting um you know Listening to you, it, it strikes me that that cooperation between NATO and the U is so essential to something the Alliance is talking about a lot today, which is resilience. And the idea that, yes, some forces may rely on GPS and, and others might be relying on, on Galileo, and. To have those options, if there is an attack on critical infrastructure or those communications, really makes sense for both NATO and the EU. Um, so I hope we'll see more in that direction. You know, we talked about uh, some of the mechanisms and and structures that NATO is setting up, uh, and you mentioned centers of excellence, um, but. I think that, as I recall, in October 2020, Allies also agreed to create their own NATO Space Center, and that, in fact, Andrea, that's housed at Allied Air Command in Germany. Could you tell us a little bit about how that Space Center
2: is coming together and what its mandate is? Uh, Sure, gladly. Uh, So as you mentioned, it's just been established barely a year ago. So it's still in a very early phase of being established. And so it's with performing its functions on a very limited basis. And that's, I think, is quite interesting, but also something that you see quite often nowadays when it comes to space and and space uh, capabilities or military space programs. So you put a new label on already existing structures, and then you see from where it goes. uh, You see where it goes from there. So currently, we have a small group of experts from Germany, the UK and the United States, but also further personnel is going to be added. And the main mandate you could say for the NATO Space Center is threefold. So on the one side, it's it's set to coordinate Allied space activities. It is also there to provide support to NATO military operations from space by, for example, providing SATCOM or image Shree But a really important um, task, and which I find quite fascinating and necessary, is the last task to actually increase NATO's space domain awareness, and thereby it works closely with the national space agencies. They provide the relevant information, be it ISR information or SSA data, and then the NATO Space Center will merge all this information together and then distribute it among all member allies so that we have the common ground when it comes to information. But as I said, it's still in the process of being established and we will have a more, certainly more steps to go down the road.
0: That's so important. I mean, you mentioned domain awareness. It's so important to indications and warning, getting allies on the same page. We see a similar model with the NATO Intelligence Fusion Center, because if allies don't have a common picture and interpretation of that picture, it it becomes very difficult to move into any sort of collective action.
1: Uh, Caitlin, did you want to come in on this question as well? I did. I just wanted to reinforce how important space domain awareness is, Um, and how challenging it is. It's not like tracking traffic where we can see cars and identify them and where they're going. It is an educated guess of often where that satellite is in space, um, its altitude, its inclination, how fast it's moving, the size of it. Um, And as we see this increased presence in low earth orbit, especially, which is getting incredibly crowded and then also full of space debris, which everyone loves to talk about, knowing where our satellites are and where they're going and what they're classified as is incredibly um, important for making informed decisions about resiliency, as you mentioned, Rachel, but also coordinating amongst allies and partners when it comes to, for example, which satellite has the capacity over a certain area on earth at what time. Um, And so that's really important when you think of uh, forces on the ground Um, or in in zones of conflict. That's great. I mean, Caitlin, sort of following that thread,
0: in your book chapter, you write about how space figures into discussions about gray zone and cross domain deterrence. And given the complications you just laid out about, you know, domain awareness in space, that gray zone is known for being very difficult in terms of attribution and, and generating allies consensus on what they're seeing and whether they have to To respond. And in our second episode of this podcast, we talked about how U.S. and NATO planners are really struggling to shape operational concepts in these areas and integrate them into, for example, the NATO integrated military structure or even national military structures. What do you think needs to be done with respect to space in this sort of gray zone cross-domain deterrence
1: area? Um, It seems that the risks of of failing to do so could, could be quite consequential. Sometimes I think that space is like the ultimate gray zone. There are minimal rules in space (laughs) for operating satellites, minimal rules for norms of behavior or what constitutes good behavior in space, Um, but also that space systems and counter space systems, so systems that deny space services, can be used both in space or on the ground. And often they're really hard to attribute or to accurately, you know, pinpoint where they are or where that, you know, jamming signal or something like that is coming from. So we have seen, you know, our organization writes an annual report on counter space weapons assessment. So we look at what in open source information are other countries investing in? Where have we seen instances of counter space weapons being used or tested? And a lot of these instances we find are in these like areas of gray zone conflict, including Ukraine. Um, we see jamming technology specifically, so big towers that just throw up a bunch of radio frequency signal that's similar to the signal that the satellite is communicating in, and it creates this static that you just can't intercept, you can't receive the signal that, from the satellite clearly. And that is a great you know, gray zone challenge in that they are mobile, they're ground-based, They're reversible, so they don't permanently damage anything. They don't kill anybody, but they do disrupt that capability so severely that it's almost like you don't have it. And it's causing all of these these questions. And so I think this is a struggle everywhere. It's not, you know, just for NATO, but also the United States on how they plan to to attack and plan for these, you know, these counter uh, space weapons in in gray zone areas.
0: Yeah, that's, that's quite fascinating and disturbing at the same time. I mean, you, you sort of gave us a little taste of, of what these capabilities look like in space. Can you just explain, going a little bit wonky here, the difference between passive and active satellite defense options? Because I think it's hard for listeners to, to maybe visualize how those are
1: operationalized. Sure, I love talking about this because it really gets into the kind of dual use nature of a lot of space systems. Um, as Andrea was saying, a lot of civilian systems can benefit the military. GPS is a great example of that. It both enables me to order Uber Eats or find my way around DC in traffic, but it also, uh, you know, provides a signal, an encrypted signal, for the military to use precision guided munitions. And so, when we talk about passive and active satellite defenses, you also kind of have this dual use challenge. First, you mentioned resiliency, Rachel, it's, it's a huge trend in space as well. The U.S. military is talking about resilient systems a lot, and there are many ways to do this. One is to invest in passive defenses. So that is making your satellite harder to damage or harder to attack. And there are a variety of ways to do this, but it's more of like a deterrence by denial kind of mindset of making the systems or making the attack just so costly it's not useful so you can build in resilience by maybe hardening your satellites making them harder to attack or to hack you know if we're talking about cyber you can you can encrypt signals you can also spread that mission out across tens of satellites instead of 5 giving yourself some resiliency and proliferation there. There are a lot of different methods. Active satellite defenses have been proposed by countries like France, which are using, in my my perspective, using counter space weapons to defend your satellite. Um, And so France specifically has proposed bodyguard satellites to protect their high value assets that might even have like a shoot back system on it. So something that could target the incoming warhead or the incoming satellite that might damage or affect the high value asset by having these little bodyguard satellites kind of hovering around. To me, that active satellite defense is dual use. It's just reliant on the intent. Are you using it to protect your satellite or is it its own counter space weapon and in, it, in and of itself. I think the answer is yes for both, but you cannot create norms of behavior and you cannot create um, you know, solid international regulations on intent. And so as countries continue to invest in active defenses, I find that a really challenging environment to introduce into this already kind of ruleless less uh, domain. Yeah, intent is not not quite
0: so quantitative or measurable as as I think we would like. You know, Andrea, picking up on that. I mean, I can imagine that you know different member states have different views of of what's acceptable use, both on, both on the passive and active side. But there are there any rules? I mean, I mean, Caitlin talked about space as the ultimate gray zone, and the fact there really aren't many rules, but are there any international rules and norms that are already in place that put limits on military conduct in space or other things? And and if not, what do we need most to sort of make sure this this stays in a useful but but sort of contained direction?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, I think Caitlin perfectly um, elaborated on the really many dangers that are in or that we find in space nowadays and partly they're mostly or they're mostly due to the fact that space is kind of an underregulated regulated fear so sometimes people really compare it to the wild wild west or the hotspot of grey zone area as um, Caitlin has pointed out so the international law basis I'd say is, inter- is the outer space treaty dated now from 1967 so as you can see a lot of time has passed since 1967 so um, international law or space law has really fallen behind the technological and political um, developments so far. But what the Outer Space Treaty does is laying down the governing principles of how to use space. Um, so it, one of the most important principles surely is that all states should be guaranteed free access to space and the free use of space, uh, that all space use had has to be peaceful and um, being conducted in a sustainable manner. It's also quite interesting that, for example, it is not allowed really to appropriate uh, space or any celestial bodies. So when you think about what certain actors, private or state actors, are uh, thinking about when it comes to the moon, this is not governed or this is not allowed under international law. When it comes to military endeavors in space, the only thing that is really laid down in the Outer Space Treaty is that it's not allowed or it's prohibited actually to place nuclear weapons or other weapons of mass destruction in space, but all the kinds of um, counter space technologies that Caitlin has explained, there's basically no real ruling or no real measures of arms control in prohibiting or in preventing a further proliferation of these counter space technologies. And quite just recently, we had a uh, a kinetic anti-satellite test conducted by Russia, which is, of course, one of the most uh, severe uh, challenges when it comes to space debris, because it generates space debris. So I think the most pressing issue we nowadays face is that we should really work towards a ban on asset tests that generate space debris but currently we have several initiatives especially within the united nations which kind of look promising and which really should be um, accompanied by all the states but i think first and foremost it's really important that we come to an international consensus within the un format to really define norms and guiding principles on how to keep space sustainable in the long run
0: Andrea, listening to you talk about what exists and and the fora where these new rules and norms are being considered, it reminds me again, a lot of the conversations on cyber um, and how the UN is is working to establish these rules and norms in real time as boundaries are are being pushed. I think we're we're almost to the end of our time, but I wanted to bring this back home. So the reason our podcast is called NATO's Road to Madrid is because we're looking at issues in the run-up to the NATO summit in Madrid uh, this summer. And one of the things that NATO is preparing in the run-up to Madrid is its strategic concept, which hasn't been updated since 2010. What do each of you expect to be reflected in that strategic concept? Um, Caitlin, let's start with you.
1: Well, I would say what I what I hope to see in the strategic concept is space to play a significant role. We start, have started to see, as mentioned earlier, more nation-states taking interest in investing in space capabilities. And I think it would be a strong decision for NATO to do similarly um, and publicly announce, you know, their intent for space, how they plan to coordinate. I would love to see the public version of the NATO space policy that was released, but not released publicly. You know, there are a lot of, of steps that countries in NATO are starting to take and seeing um, a better outline of their goals and the means and ways they, they intend to, to achieve those goals would be promising. Andrea,
0: how about you? What do you want to see in that strategic concept, which is limited to just
2: a few pages, by the way? I know that's always the problem, isn't it? But I want to totally underline what Kaylin said on a clear communication of our intent in space of our perhaps I don't want to say red lines because red lines are hard to enforce we know that since President Obama's red line in Syria but in terms of a declaratory policy for the sake of transparency of clarity but also to um, boost our own deterrence so I think this would be a very important step also the basic line should be, of course, that um, NATO activities will be in full accordance with international law. I don't have any doubt about that. But per- Personally, for me, it would be really interesting to see also a closer outreach or a strong outreach uh, to the private and commercial sectors, because as Caitlin stated, uh, there is where the innovation is taking place. And we've seen um, trends within NATO also to have a better outreach towards technology or to, towards um, private actors. So I think this would also be, um, especially with regard to the dual use nature of most base capabilities, a very interesting starting point for the strategic concept.
0: Well, that's an excellent note to end on. Caitlin and Andrea, I can't thank you enough. I mean, that was very exciting. And I I feel um, sort of energized and much more informed than when I started and have a lot of great images in my head about bodyguard satellites in in outer space, protecting my my mobile phone communications and and even more important things. So thank you for talking through that to making our listeners smarter. And we'll be looking for how space does appear in the strategic concept as as well as uh, other aspects of NATO. So thanks again for your time. That was another episode of NATO's Road to Madrid. Thank you again to Caitlin and Andrea for joining us and to our listeners for tuning in. Thank you also to the team at CSIS, to my colleague Colin Wall, our lead researcher and coordinator on the project, and to our editor, Alana Nevins. If you like what you heard, please check out our page on the CSIS website, subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice, and leave us a rating and review. See you next time.